0: Hello there I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor podcast brought to you by The Herald. I'm speaking to the party leaders, challenging them on their policies, their strategies. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you may even vote. Scotland's recovery should be in Scotland's hands. Our focus is on Scotland. The nationalist focus on separation
1: We're going to be asking people in Scotland to vote like our future depends on it, because it really does.
0: Independence would be like Brexit on a rocket to Mars. Everything that Alba does in this election will be a positive contribution to building that independence supermajority. We can choose to focus on what unites us as a country, not what divides us. In this podcast, we'll hear from Patrick Harvey, co-leader of the Scottish Greens, Stand by for the environment, coalition talk and drugs policy. Mr. Harvey, thanks very much indeed and welcome. Thanks, Brian. How are you? Are you coping Uh, well? Coping well, coping well with the pandemic. So let's start with with that. How would you, we we have to tackle the pandemic, of course, we have to try and uh, contain the the spread of this hideous disease, but we have to think post-pandemic as well. So how would you rebuild the economy, rebuild society perhaps after the pandemic?
1: It has been an incredibly tough year and everybody's incredibly you know impatient naturally to get back to, to something like normality and I, I feel that as, as keenly as everybody. I, I think the critical challenge for us is not just to get back to what was the old normal but to say how does this need to change our society? How does this need to change our economy? Very clearly we have a, a climate and nature emergency. And I think most political parties are talking about a green recovery from COVID. I don't think they're quite joining the dots yet and saying, how would that be different from their longstanding policies of subsidizing oil and gas extraction, road building programs and so on. Uh, But we also need to build a a, a fairer and more equal uh, society. You know, the young people in particular have suffered the economic brunt of the the pandemic. Uh Uh, And yet now we're talking about, you know, things like vaccine passports, which would uh, allow hospitality venues to reopen and young people wouldn't get into them unless they're behind the bar pulling a pipe for minimum wage. So we need to be looking at making sure that as we recover, we recover in a way that, that creates a, a more equal economy. The The central planks of this for us are investment in things like public transport, a rail for all programme, a 20-year programme of investment in in railways would give Scotland a, a public transport network to, to you know, to, yeah. match, to match the aspirations of many other European countries, uh, high quality, uh, accessible to every part of, of Scotland uh, and zero carbon. Uh, but, you know, a whole host of other areas in renewables, in warm homes and nature recovery as well would create high quality jobs for the future.
0: Let's pick up on a few of those. Politicians always say investment. I understand that what they mean is spending. They mean public spending, spending money that is raised from taxation, your rail plan, for example, you've said it could bring 17,000 jobs in construction, but it's costed an initial estimate cost at £22 billion, £22,000 million. How is that possibly affordable in, in the current economic climate? Well, it's a plan for 20 years. Uh, and that uh, that's
1: um, quite comparable, actually, to the multi-billion pound road building programme Uh, that successive Scottish governments have already had. Uh, Most political parties recognise we need an investment-led recovery. Uh, Some of this is about the priorities. What are we choosing to invest in? So we would shift away from road building and into public transport. But we'll also be setting out policies on things like uh, wealth taxation. We need to reduce wealth inequalities. Wealth taxation has a a role to play. And land land value tax would also play a role because... Land value tax means that you can pay for public investment from the uplift in land values that would otherwise go to to private landowners.
0: I'll come to to taxation in a moment, but but let's talk about the level of the sums. I mean, we have only we've barely recovered. You know, you look at interest rates. We have barely recovered from the financial collapse in in 2008. We have a hugely costly pandemic, which has completely transformed the the public spending, uh, both revenue and, and output of the U.K., and Scotland, how can we possibly afford the level of you say investment, others would say spending that you, that you are talking about?
1: Well, it's very clear that the, the existing uh, background level of, of capital investment, uh, you know, is is very substantial. This is about shifting away from unsustainable forms of capital investment, like road building. You know, the the kind of infrastructure that generates more traffic and more carbon emissions needs to end, and we need to be to shifting that. Toward low carbon, you know things like uh, the oil and gas sa- uh, subsidies and tax breaks. Uh, you know billions of pounds there as well. You know being handed over to the industry that is responsible for destroying our life support system. Yeah, so this is about
0: this is about choices. According to the Scottish government, oil and gas extraction in the last year that they've done was worth 8.8 billion pounds to Scotland's economy. It supports. 100,000 jobs both directly and indirectly. Scrapping dependence on oil and gas is not exactly wonderful news for the North Sea oil and gas industry. Well the future of Scotland's
1: economy is clearly not in fossil fuels because if we continue that uh, it is literally a suicide note. You know we, our society cannot survive, our civilization cannot survive, our ecosystem cannot survive if we continue to use oil and gas uh, like there's no tomorrow. So you know everybody's talking about Phrases like "just transition," and yet they're still saying they want a just transition while continuing to extract oil and gas for as long as there is market demand well, for it. Now, if we, we do that, that, you can understand we wanting do a transition
0: that. when there's a hundred thousand jobs dependent upon the sector in, Scotland, in well, Scotland right now. Yes,
1: that's why. That's precisely why we need investment in the alternative. Look, for for decade after decade, we've seen the same failings. When we've known that economic change is coming, we've failed to plan for it, failed to invest in the alternative. We saw that in the 80s deindustrialization. We've seen it most recently in in, in a smaller scale, things like uh, Longannet, right? When Longannet, everybody knew Scotland's last coal-fired power station was going to close, and it should close, and it had to close. But what we should have done was spent the last 10 years of its operation with the owners The local government and central government sitting around the table saying, "How do we invest in this community's future after this plant?" And instead, what they did, as so often happens, is they all just said, "We're committed to the long-term operation of this plant." Full stop. So there was a complete failure until the decision was taken. Finally, it's closing. Oh, now we'll have a task force Mm. to, to to look at alternatives. This isn't good enough. And if we let that happen to the North Sea. Uh, to the to the oil and gas uh, industry, if we simply say, you know, we'll bury our head in the sand until it has to close,
0: your, and your then rivals, we'll act, it's rivals, way too late. Your rivals, including the, the, the current first minister from, from the SNP, are saying you have to have a transition period because the extent of the investment, the extent of the return, and the extent of the, the, the employment is so huge in the North Sea that you, you're talking about leave it in the ground. You say leave it in the ground. Leave it in the ground leaves 100,000 jobs at risk. Well, the, the 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 non-negotiable aspect of this
1: is the science. Uh, how much carbon can we afford to emit? How much oil and gas can we afford to use? That's the non-negotiable part. Around that, we have to develop our economic response. And the, the science tells us very clearly we have far more oil and gas in existing known reserves than we can ever afford to use, at least three times as much. So if if you don't have a program that says, we're going to stop exploration. If you don't have a program that says we're going to we're going to have a a, a, a reasonable time frame for ending this industry, uh, then you're never going to have. You know, not just a future economy. You're never going to have
0: a viable life support system for our species and for but every you're, other species but, around but us. You're not, but you're not talking about a reasonable time frame. You're saying leave it in the ground. You're, you're saying call a halt to, to, to exploration and and extraction. Yes, that's what a reasonable time frame is. A reasonable you know, does reasonable, reasonable, frame, what, what, reasonable how long of those hundred thousand jobs
1: got? When you're when you're facing a, the 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 potential end of your own civilization and of every other species on the planet reasonable does not mean reasonably slow it means reasonably quick it means within the time scale that nature allows you know if we if we just pretend that this isn't happening then you know not only will will the next generation curse our name but the you know there may not be one after that you know this this is a this is a critical life and death decision for humanity and for every other species on the planet Let's not fail in our historic moral responsibility to be the generation that turns the tanker
0: around. You mentioned taxation earlier. Turn to that now. You you say that in negotiations with the, the, the Scottish government in the previous parliament, you brought fairer taxation and you look for fairer income tax ta- taxation for the, the parliament ahead. D- define what you mean by that, if you'd be so kind. Well, our objective uh, in
1: designing our tax policy for the last election, 2016, was to have a, a system that would raise more revenue because clearly we needed to protect public services from austerity, but to do it in a way that protected everybody on a low or middle income and, and raise more revenue from those who could afford to pay more from high earners. Middle and income, that's exactly what being, we- mid, Forgive me for interrupting, middle income being? uh median full time salary I, I think at the time it was about 26000 uh from memory just going back 5 years so really you know basically if you're if you're earning more than a full time average salary in Scotland then you'll be paying a little bit more and if you if you're just a little bit more than like the, the average you say up to 30000 32 33 then you're paying a tiny bit more than you would have done uh, in the previous system and it's only once you're earning high genuinely high salaries above the higher income tax threshold, they pay, you're paying substanti- substantially more. So that's the kind of approach that we need. We also need to apply that to local taxation, where there's been a continual failure of the political parties at Hollywood to grapple with the, the broken system of, of local government tax. And we need to apply it to wealth taxes as well, because income inequality is only one part of the, 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 the scandal of, of inequality in our society. Wealth inequality
0: is extraordinary. But if you bring in wealth taxation, is there not a danger of deterring those who are the wealth creators in society as well and that thereby damaging and potentially wrecking the economy?
1: No, because it's workers who are the wealth creators in our economy. What I think you mean is the wealth hoarders.
0: You don't think there's any damage to, to, the, to, to society and the economy by, by, by hitting those who are, um, to use your word, investing in, in, in the future of, of the economy? Do you know, one of, the, one of the things that we... Um,
1: as Greens continually argue about, is what are we trying to achieve in the economy? What is is economic progress? What is a stronger, better economy? Now, for some people, that's just growth. Growth, 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 GDP. Uh, And all they care about is effectively a measure of the, the financial transactions that are whirling around the economy. And they don't break it down and think, well, who's getting the benefit of that economic activity? Who's being burdened with the, the environmental and the social cost of generating that economic activity? Greens take a different view. The economic progress, a better, stronger, healthier economy is not just one that grows and grows and grows forever because we know that ultimately that can't last without trashing the planet. Uh, and it causes huge economic inequality as well. A strong economy is one which meets everyone's basic needs. Uh, meets everybody's needs and gives everyone the chance of a decent life. And yes, absolutely, having a tax system that redistributes wealth, that achieves a greater economic equality for people means a better economy.
0: Let's let's talk about you know, another aspect of the, the fossil, the, 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 uh, reducing the dependence upon fossil fuels. We've talked there about reducing extraction from from the North Sea. Presumably, we'd also reduce the use of, of fossil fuels. What about, for example, yeah. flights to the sun on holiday? I mean, they're currently banned because of, or, or restricted because of the pandemic. But people are desperate for those to resume. Presumably, you would, if not bring them to an end, you you would discourage the idea of you know a, a flight to Alicante or Florida. Well, we certainly need to
1: discourage the idea that that aviation levels can grow every year. Uh, And for a long, long time, governments have have supported the industry uh, in just seeking to have more aviation year upon year upon year. And we know that that's one of the reasons why Scotland's transport emissions are going up, not down. Uh, at a time of a climate emergency we also know though most of that growth is not you know a family having a, a holiday in the sun once a year most of that growth is about 15 percent of the population who are frequent flyers uh, they treat aviation as casually as as most people treat getting on a, a bus. Uh-huh. So a frequent flyer levy to replace the existing system of aviation tax would mean that everybody can have, you know, the occasional flight uh, if they particularly need it or if, you know, perhaps, a, you know, one flight a year for holiday purposes or whatever. But the more frequently you fly, the more tax you would have. So you would have a disincentive for the, the kind of, uh, aviation that has generated all that growth, which is if, very wealthy people flying very, very frequently.
0: But, but Mr. Harvey, if you're talking about a suicide of the planet, as, as you did earlier, is it not faintly hypocritical to be saying, go on, you can carry on flying to to and Alicante, as long as you only do it once a year? If, if it's that damaging, you should call a halt to it altogether. You should have the, the courage of your convictions, shouldn't you?
1: I don't think any Greens uh, say we need to dig up the runways to plant cabbages, right? We, we know that aviation has a role to play and within limits it can play that role so long as we keep it within limits it's the idea of, of limitless growth of aviation that is unsustainable okay. and it's the it's not the the, the you know the, the the annual family holiday which is the source of that growth uh, it's a small proportion of the population who take something like 70% of the flights about 70% of the flights is that 15% wealthiest frequent flyers. That's the source of the problem. And if we want to bring aviation back down within sustainable levels, that's where the fix is
0: needed. Okay, let's turn to another aspect of cost because of, of, of supply and cost because of distribution. You, you, you want, I presume, to cut the length of supply lines for goods, to cut the length of supply lines particularly for food you want presumably to to source food locally if possible. Does that mean we have to accept what is available locally and we wouldn't necessarily have you know the year-round provision of food that we've got used to in in the current way of doing things? Well the current way of doing things quite often
1: has um, goods and and, you know agricultural produce that is grown here whirling around the, the planet a few times being processed and resold into different products before it ends back on supermarket shelves in this country. So Uh, There's a great deal that we can do to to build local supply chains. Uh, There's a great deal that we can do in public procurement, for example, to support uh, agriculture here. There's a huge amount that needs to be done to shift agricultural subsidies away from just volume production to satisfy a market and toward public goods. And that includes uh, rewilding. It includes biodiversity and includes all of those environmental objectives that, that have not been met.
0: But if we are genuinely to shorten supply lines for food, then we'd have to get used to the old system, which was you—you you had strawberries, for example, when there was a strawberry season. You didn't have them all year round, and including in January, and February.
1: Well, there's a case for that, yeah. There's a there's a case for in, enjoying strawberries as a as a treat in the summer, rather than thinking that you can have them in, in the winter. But you know, a a large part of this is shifting the Scottish government's thinking about food. Uh, toward how are people eating rather than, again, how much GDP is it generating? We, you talk about the Scottish government's food policy and they seem most interested in, in you know, how much farmed salmon are we sending to China, for goodness sake, rather than asking what are people eating? How are people eating? What's what's the impact of our agricultural systems on food poverty uh, and on health uh, in, in this country? So that's the focus that food policy should have is how are people eating what's the environmental impact and how can we make sure that we that we don't leave people in in food poverty
0: let's let's turn to some issues that arise in in these very elections and these of course we'll just be discussing huge issues that arise in these elections let's turn to education you talk about the idea of kids starting school at seven a play-based kindergarten before that but but don't don't they need to to in order to be able to, to to keep up to start learning to read and write, and don't they need explicitly to be to be tested on that at an early phase to catch any problems before they become too damaging? Well, the
1: experience of, of countries like Finland, for example, which have uh, already gone down this route of having a play-based kindergarten stage... Uh, in the early years, uh, and slightly delaying formal education. The experience there is that actually that gives children and young people the strongest grounding uh, in the, the creative skills, the listening skills, the, uh, the the interpersonal skills that they need in order to get the, the maximum benefit from the formal education later on. Well, and it's been really successful that... It's yeah. been really successful at reducing the educational in, uh, inequality that Scotland
0: constantly debates and never solves. But if kids are not getting the maximum benefit, if they're in danger of falling through the cracks, and they aren't caught at that early phase, at earliest of possible stages, isn't there a danger they just drift through through schooling without ever being, without the problems ever being addressed? I think that's partly, uh, you know, something that, that
1: is, is caused by our current system, which is very focused on a, a, a narrow uh, kind of uh, formal approach to education, not seeing that wider sense of, uh, of, of creative education, of interpersonal education, that the, the play-based kindergarten stage would, would give young people a grounding in. And, you know, things like the, the obsession with homework, the obsession with uh, assessments and exams, uh, I think very often creates the sense of resentment uh, from from young people who are struggling, uh, that that they have a negative association with schoolwork, that it feels always like a burden rather than something that encourages them to flourish
0: on their own terms. You say an obsession with exams, but... Others might say that those exams that are suspended for this year, like you know the hires and 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 other exams that are suspended for this year, you say that that's an obsession, but it could be. It's a way of determining uh, who gets into university. It could be a way of, of uh, reassuring employers that the the people they are hiring have got a certain standard. Would you scrap external exams altogether? We would move the emphasis
1: strongly away from this idea of a high stakes, uh, you know, all 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 or nothing uh, exam period at the end of the the year for for the upper age groups. And the standardized assessments at the the lower age groups, uh, I think also the evidence is not supporting that. You know, there's a very strong view and I think a growing view within uh, education that those high stakes exams are not the most effective way either at incentivising young people to, to learn and to, to get the maximum benefit of their education or to assess how much they've learned because it's all about coping with the stress and the pressure. Uh, ra- you know, the the, the year round assessment uh, led by of, teachers- and life's, about stress and and pressure,
0: life's about stress and pressure. Don't we have to get used to that? At least these exams tell you who's it, good at algebra. Is that a happy thought? That life's all about stress and pressure? Is well, that, is that what we aspire to? I don't know whether you know, it's no, a no, happy no. thought, Mr. I don't know whether it's your happy thought for the day, Mr. Harvey, but it it, it, it is a if, it's if you're not, going to get a job, if you're going to go to university, it, it is a It's
1: not what life should be about. We shouldn't be creating this expectation that life is some emotionally draining, exhausting. Uh, rat race and that we, that we're teaching how, young people to be ready for that
0: how do you ter- how do you determine who's qualified to go for university if you don't have exams how do you do it well year-round assessment is the best way to
1: assess not just how much young people have learned but actually uh, to make sure that if they're if they're struggling with something uh, uh you know through the through the year that you identify that right there and then and you find ways to to help them and to assist them through it uh, and I, I genuinely think this is a growing view within education that high-stakes exams, you know, we, effectively we've still got a, an education system that is designed for the 19th or 20th century uh, and we really need to go back to, to scratch and think what are we trying to achieve here and how can we learn from the best, most innovative,
0: uh, creative approaches that have been taken elsewhere. Take me through on on health. Uh, obviously, health a gigantic concern for people at the present moment because of the pandemic. But do you have a, a you know other than, than than more money? Do you have a distinctive approach to health and social care that would perhaps be you know worth worth evincing to the to the people? Well, both health and social care need to be
1: attractive professions to work in, uh, and with the incredible level of of stress and the low wages in in many parts of those those sectors. Uh, I think we've we've clearly got a, a long standing problem here that needs to be addressed. So we we certainly need to be supporting the the unions who are arguing for uh, a fair pay increase uh, in in both those sectors and making sure that the the integration of those the health and social care services works uh, for the workforce as well as working for uh, people who are using those services. More than the, more,
0: more than the four percent offer from from uh, the current Scottish government, maybe maybe in line with the twelve percent. A 12, I about a 12.5% request from, from some of the unions. Well, I'm
1: pleased that the Scottish Government went uh, beyond what the UK Government has offered. That's important progress. And I think it, it demonstrates that they want to be doing the right thing. But the, the unions have the, the role of determining with their members what is an acceptable offer. I'm not going to undercut their important role in determining that, but I will support them in making the case that they're making. More fundamentally, though, in, in the green approach to health, we, we need to move away from the idea that only... Uh, those services that, that deal with people uh, who have a health problem are, are the ones uh, to be important. We are still building homes which undermine people's health. We're allowing uh, the, the the economy to create working conditions that undermine people's health. We're creating an environment physically that create that undermines people's health. I'm speaking to you from Dumbarton Road, where I where I live, one of the most polluted parts of Scotland. Uh, we're still allowing the causes of ill health to go unaddressed. Yeah. So we really need to stop pushing people into the river uh, at the at upstream and then fishing them out downstream. We need to be creating a society that that generates good health as well as creating services uh, that people need when they experience poor health.
0: Let me turn you to one of the uh, arising from that, uh, uh, an area of, of policy that's drugs policy, those people who do fall through, the, the the cracks in society that you were describing there. You talk about end in ending the war on drugs, just ending the war on drugs. Does that what does that mean? Does that mean legalising or perhaps decriminalising certain drugs?
1: I, I think the case for decriminalising is extremely strong. Uh, we've we've felt that for years. And you you talk about drugs as uh, in, in relation to people who've fallen through the cracks in society. Yeah. Absolutely, there are people who have. Extremely problematic drug use, uh, addiction issues, uh, and, and that's very severe. There are also people uh, who don't have extremely serious problems uh, as a result of very moderate use of, of um, milder recreational drugs, uh, which don't cause a crisis. And actually, the thing that causes them harm is the criminalisation. The thing that causes them harm is pushing them uh, toward illegal uh, operators to, 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 to get uh, you know, something like... Uh, a bit of grass from you know what why are we not thinking let's regulate these these products because these are dangerous substances just like alcohol and tobacco are dangerous substances we wouldn't leave those substances to gangsters we wouldn't say alcohol tobacco those are industries which will leave in the hands of the gangsters and yet we have done that with other dangerous substances to be, to be clear so if, you, if we minimize- want to have some control and regulation uh you know legalization and, and decriminalization are the
0: way to achieve that would, would you legalize all of the drugs or, or just decriminalize the, you know, the cannabis grass, as you described? It? Well, I, I don't think that there's a, a
1: very strong reason for criminalizing users uh, of any of these substances. You know, I, I used, back before I was in politics, I used to work for an HIV agency. Yeah. Now, I was on the sexual health side, but in the next office, there were uh, folk dealing with, with people who'd become HIV positive uh, through intravenous drug use. And the one thing that everybody working in that field knew was that if there's a, a single intervention that makes somebody more likely to become HIV positive or hep C positive, more likely to stay addicted, more likely to commit crimes in the future to fund their addiction, that one intervention that makes everything worse is criminalising them and sending them to prison. We need to see this as a public health issue, not a criminal justice issue, and that's fundamentally the change that I think a lot of people recognise would be in the interests of, of our society, and in the interests of people who have the most severe problems.
0: Let me turn you finally, Mr Harvey, thank you for that. Let me turn you finally to the strategy, generally. Now, you support Scottish independence, your party supports Scottish independence, and you're mostly seeking seats on the top-up regional list. I accept that you're standing in constituencies as well, but you're mostly seeking seats. You you currently hold seats on the top-up regional list. Hasn't that, that offer, that position, being usurped by Alex Salmond and his Alaba party? Well, certainly the, the the PR system that we have in the
1: Scottish Parliament makes it easier for smaller parties to, to win seats uh, on the regional vote than on the constituency vote. Uh, in the last election, uh, I came second in the Glasgow-Kelvin constituency. Uh, I'll be having another uh, crack at that again, and we're clearly in the strongest place position uh, to challenge... Uh, for that seat so yeah we take constituencies seriously we're we're moving gradually in that direction rather than uh, you know yeah. just just throwing everything at it because the, the, the PR on it is important. competition presented by mr salmon and as, for, as for alex Salmond, I mean I see very little crossover in uh, the the kind of people who support the greens who are motivated by a more equal society by addressing the climate and nature emergencies. Uh, and by a, a kind of forward-looking progressive view of of scotland i see very little crossover between those kind of voters uh, and those
0: who are attracted to yesterday's men but he's a big he's a big he's a big name isn't he going to use up as i said your position your party he he has a he's a, he a big name and there are some in
1: the media especially you know down south maybe the the, the uk media who who start to pay attention to scottish politics when we're right coming up to an election, you think, oh, Alex Salmon, we've heard of him, that must make it important. But actually, if you look at the, the, the polling about people's net approval of different political figures, he's down below Boris Johnson, he's not the, a popular figure. And he's also uh, given his behaviour, not the criminal charges, which he wasn't found guilty of, but the the other behaviour that he has admitted and that we know was inappropriate. He's a bit of a discredited figure. And I Most of the people I've spoken to have stopped me in the street to chat about politics or what have you, uh, have recognised that it's a a bit of an ego trip from his point of view. Uh, It's not really something about the future. And if if we care about Scottish politics in the round, Yes, about the constitutional question and the democratic principle that it's for Scotland to decide its own future, but also about the climate and nature emergency, also about the the poverty and inequality in our society, also about how we we recover from COVID. These are life and death choices uh, that the next session of the Scottish Parliament is going to be making. And I don't think Alex Salmond is the answer to any of these questions.
0: Which is more important to you, independence or the environmental question? I don't think any green
1: politician you, you ever meet will uh, will say that human survival and the survival of our ecosystem uh, is anything less than the, the top of the list. But the, the the point about independence and the reason why. Greens uh, overwhelmingly support independence, uh, is that we see it as a a means to an end. It's not about wrapping yourself in a saltire and thinking independence is the solution to every problem. Independence would bring its own challenges, but they would be challenges that allow us to address the fundamental problems facing our society. So, you know, it's about What do we do with the energy system? It's about, uh, you know, how could we invest differently if we had macroeconomic control uh, uh, for for an independent Scotland? It's about the role that we would have on the world stage. And for me, that means being a force for peace in the world rather than a member of a first-strike nuclear alliance like NATO. So for us, it's about independence with a purpose, for a purpose. It's about what kind of society we want to live in, uh, not just, you know, Putting a saltire on everything and, and and thinking that's enough.
0: Do you think it, one of the problems it would bring would be a much higher net deficit, as disclosed by the government expenditure and revenue for Scotland figures, a much higher net deficit than than for the UK as a whole? Well,
1: there's continual debates between people with different views when the when the chairs figures come out, and you know there there is a, a you know a certain amount of of relevance to it, but there's also uh, you know. A reasonable case for saying it's a description of Scotland's economy as it is now, not how it would be with independence. Uh, and, you know, one of the most fundamental things that we would need to address is our relationship to the EU. Uh, if Scotland voted for independence, you would probably need some kind of transitional arrangement to, uh, to, to help us smooth that path back into the EU. And the terms of that kind of agreement uh, I think would be far more fundamental in shaping how does our economy change over time uh, as we move out of the UK and back into the EU. Those kind of questions are far more important in terms of uh, you, you know what our prospects would be for the future and how to make them uh, bright prospects, far more so than you know what was in the last set of GRS figures.
0: So you could see us going back into the EU, but perhaps via EFTA, the European Free Trade Association or some other means, some other interim means. I... I I
1: mean, I, I wouldn't want to close that down. I'm I'm a little bit sceptical that EFTA is the is the right route. I suspect it would need some kind of bespoke arrangement uh, that recognises that there's a transition out of the UK and back into the EU. No country's gone through a path like that. Um, you know, just as just as no country has been in the situation that Ireland and Northern Ireland have been in uh, in relation to the EU. But the the willingness was there on the part of the EU to figure out how can we design a system. Uh, that will address this, in, and in many ways, it's the UK's unwillingness to agree to the, the consequences of a treaty they they already signed in relation to Ireland that that causes a problem. So, we w- we would need to work through with both the UK government and the EU uh, what is our path back to EU membership, and making sure that that was a successful path. Uh, I think is far more fundamental to ensuring our, our, our future economic prospects are bright. Final
0: question, Mr. Harvey, Do you think we need an earlier referendum on independence in the next parliament if the opportunity arises, or would you be prepared and even perhaps prefer to wait? What we've said is that
1: it should happen in the in the next session of the Scottish Parliament, within session six, uh, and that it should be after the pandemic. You know, that's a that's a that's a, a, a subjective term, I know, because the COVID. Yeah. When uh, is it? as we're emerging, as we're recovering, uh, once we're no longer in a, in a kind of crisis mode, uh, you know, that's that's the, the timescale. The principle, the democratic principle is that it's for the Scottish Parliament to decide. And if the people of Scotland decide to elect a pro-independence majority parliament, uh, it's that parliament that should decide on the timing, as well as other issues like the the question and the and the rules under
0: which the the referendum would happen. Patrick Harvey, thank you very much indeed for joining me in this Herald podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Brian.
1: This podcast was brought to you by the Herald. We're giving you the chance to get exclusive access to even more insight, analysis and opinion with a Herald subscription. Take 20% off an annual rate with the code HERALDNEW2021. This offer is for new subscribers only and is only available with the promotional code. Subscriptions will renew at the standard rate unless cancelled. And sign up to our free evening politics newsletter, Unspun, to get snap
0: analysis from some of our top contributors every day. Head to heraldscotland.com for the details. (laughs) pop <laughs> pop